In its ever-expanding efforts to protect us from hate speech, Google has introduced a new autocorrect function that prevents you from making the mistake of having conservative thoughts. From now on, if you type in the search, how can we protect our liberties, Google will autocorrect to how can we encourage the state to guide us in right thinking. If you type in George Washington, it will autocorrect to Karl Marx. And if you type in Karl Marx, it will immediately play a happy animation in which a jolly clown distributes money to the working man before slaughtering 100 million people in the name of social justice. Google says the new function will operate alongside its current policy of celebrating every fake and hateful holiday on its homepage while ignoring the Christianity that fashioned the culture in which their company thrives. If you want to find out more about the new Google policy, just type in the words autocorrect function, which will immediately be autocorrected to please take my guns away before I hurt myself. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. Life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, tomorrow is Mailbag Day. Do not forget, go to the dailywire.com website. You've got to be a subscriber or else when you try to get in, two large men in suits will grab you under the armpits and throw you back wherever you came from. But if you are a subscriber for a lousy 10 bucks a month, you can go on the Daily Wire webpage. At the top, it says podcast. Hit podcast. Find my podcast. I'm Andrew Claven, And press the Andrew Claven podcast. And then on the podcast thing, there will be a mailbag Press the mailbag. Ask me any question you want about politics, religion, your personal problems. Truly, all answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life on occasion for the better. And by the way, while we're talking about this stuff, The Daily Wire is now on Apple News. So just add us to your news channels and you can get the entire Daily Wire, right? Just right on the go on your phone. You know, on my recent vacation, we flew up to Oregon, and one of the things that I was missing was I was I was missing Candace. <laughs> now, I didn't say this to my wife. You know what I miss? I miss Candace. But the reason is because the people here at the Daily Wire, when I travel on business, they take care of me. They're always there. I can call them. I can correct things. I can make. I can say, oh, I need a change here or a change there. That makes all the difference. You can have this too with your business travel with Upside. Upside always has your back. They have a team of specialists that work 24-7 to take care of any problems that pop up on your business trip. It's like it's like mission control for a business trip, right? Every big business has this, but if you have a small business, you may not have a team of specialists working to help you out. They will monitor your trip around the clock. They'll proactively keep you posted on everything, whether it's going to rain or alternate return flights home in case you want to squeeze in one more meeting before you leave town. That is a level of service that when you get have it, you will get used to it really fast and you get it from Upside.com. For easy booking, competitive prices, and a team that always has your back, book your next business trip at Upside.com. And for a limited time, when you book your first business trip with Upside, you'll get a minimum $100 Amazon.com gift card. I would go on a trip just to get that. I'm like, I'm, I'm easy. Just go to Upside.com slash Andrew to book your first business trip. That's Upside.com slash Andrew to get at least a $100 Amazon.com gift card when you book your first trip. 
trip. $600 minimum purchase required while supplies last. See site for complete details. And don't forget to tell him we sent you because these microphones cost money and <laughs> we need to stay on. So I'm, I'm watching. Oh, you know, before I start talking about anything else, I, I want to just mention the fact that Tom Wolfe died. Terrific author. He's 87 years old. Good long life with many beautiful, beautiful books. And I'll try and talk about him later in the week. It just happened while I was preparing the show, so I didn't want to go off half cock and talk about him. But he was a terrific writer, a wise guy, and, uh, and really, really an interesting addition to the American literary canon. I'm sorry to see him go. 87 is a good long life, but I'm sorry to see him go. Uh, you know, I've been watching this thing uh, with the American embassy moving to Jerusalem. I guess we're all watching it on TV. And I, it reminded me of something uh, about failure. Failure is a habit. It's a habit of mind. I have seen this all throughout my life. I've seen it with dozens of people. Sometimes it's even popped up in my own life that failure is something you get used to and you keep doing the same thing. You know the old expression that insanity is when you keep doing the same thing, but you expect different results. I had a friend a little off the topic, but actually a good story. I had a friend a long, long time ago, and we would go out together, and sometimes we'd double date, you know, sometimes. And he dated a different woman all the time who was always the same woman. She was always, she always looked the same. She always had shortcut blonde hair. She was a small frame, but very beautiful, and she was always out of her mind. I never, seriously, never went out with this guy when his girlfriend did not end up curled up on the floor screaming and crying about something. And it was always a different woman. It was always, and, and they were so similar. They even looked so similar that one night we went out together and it was halfway through the evening before I realized he had changed girlfriends again because they were always, and one night he and I sat up in one of those kind of guys drinking all night, you know, things. And we were talking about life and everything. And he said, I can't understand it. I cannot understand it. I, my relationships keep falling apart. And I was like, you know, you keep going out with the same woman. What are you talking about? I've gone out with all these. No, I, I said, yeah, but they're all, they even look exactly like, and he couldn't hear me. It reminded me, have you ever, have you ever seen Rob that thing about the nail? It's, it's not about I the nail. Oh, it, it, let's play just, just a little bit of it. This is a girl sitting on a sofa explaining uh, to her boyfriend that she's got this terrible headache. And you, if you can't see it, if you're just listening, when she turns around, we see there's a gigantic nail sticking out of her forehead. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. <laughs> I love that. Because that is the habit of failure. That is the habit of suffering. And you know, it, in, the, in the Bible, St. Paul says, uh, I do not understand what I do for I want to do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I think it even goes beyond that too. I mean, that is, of course, the state of sin. But it also goes beyond that to what uh, the, the philosopher Schopenhauer said. He said, a man can do what he wants, but he can't will what he wants. I think we even want the things that destroy us. And when we, what we have to examine is we have to under, examine the underlying 
principles that we're operating on, the broken principles that are causing us to become comfortable with this habit of failure. So you want to see a habit of failure. You want to see a country that got into a habit of failure. Take a look at this montage of the presidents and see if you can spot which president is different from the others. This is cut number three. Jerusalem is still the capital of Israel and must remain an undivided city accessible to all. As soon as I take office, I will begin the process of moving the United States ambassador to the city of Israel as chosen as its capital. I continue to say that uh, Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel, and I have said that before and I will say it again. And Jerusalem will remain the capital of Israel and it must remain undivided. We will move the American embassy to the eternal capital of the Jewish people, Jerusalem. Can you spot the difference between those presidents? <laughs> like, you know, 20, I think it's 23 years ago, there was a bipartisan law passed in Congress that said Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and we will move our embassy to Jerusalem because it is the capital of Israel where we put our embassies, right? 23 years ago, in this law, there is a waiver that every six months, if you say, well, maybe this is not the right time, you can sign that waiver. For 23 years, presidents have been signing that waiver and obviously not doing, it's not like they've been scratching their chin and walking around the Rose Garden and thinking, hmm, do I say, you know, the thing, it's the waiver time again. Yeah, let's do You know, and it's just the habit of failure where they have, they, if we believe in it, if it's a bipartisan law, why ain't we doing it? For 23 years, I can understand six months. I could understand a year putting it off. But for 23 years, you get into a habit of failure and that habit of failure underneath that habit of failure is a system of thought, is a system of values and principles that are powering that, that you can't let go of, even as they're causing you to sink beneath the waves. And we do this in all kinds of things. We do it in our personal lives. We do it in our professional lives. And we've been doing it in our national lives with Jerusalem. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to show you, show you what that underlying principle is, or at least some of those underlying principles that have caused us to fail on this again and again, every president promising it and every president letting it go by the board. But first, we're going to talk about Candid Co. This is, now, you know, I try and uh, use everything that they give us. I try, every time we have a sponsor, I try and test it out. But Candid Co. is a system for getting accessible and affordable orthodontic care online. It's for straightening out your teeth. And I, at this point, if I got rid of the gap in my teeth, I would just miss it. I would just miss this tremendous gap that's in my teeth. I wouldn't be able to whistle, you know, at my wife anymore. You know, I wouldn't be, you know, all that stuff would just go by the way. So I did something else. I got Knowles to try it. And Knowles is going to trying this out. And you can see, I mean, Knowles is a great looking guy, right? He's a, at least he thinks he's a great looking guy. And we don't, we try not to tell him the truth, but like I mean, his teeth, his teeth do look great. His teeth do look great. And so he is trying this out for straighter and brighter teeth in an average of six months. And it costs 65% less than braces. There are no office visits needed. Everything is delivered 
to your home. You get white glove customer service. In addition to email and phone support, Candid will set up a video call with you to answer any questions you have and to walk you through the modeling process. Candid makes your makes clear aligners that are sent directly to your home and are customized specifically for you to strengthen your teeth or in my case to strengthen to straighten Knowles's teeth because I, I would miss my gap but, but Knowles says it's terrific having a real orthodontist is the main reason that candid works you have a real orthodontics dentist who is going to look at your specific case and help model these things exactly for you here's the best part candid's treatment time is an average six months and will literally save you thousands compared to the other guys. You are one step away from getting straighter, whiter teeth. Take advantage of Candid's risk-free modeling kit guarantee. Plus, when you use my dedicated link, candidco.com slash Clavin, you'll save 25% on your modeling kit, which is a pretty good deal. But there's one thing, one thing you have to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's. I just make it look easy. That's candidco.com slash Clavin to get 25% off the price of your modeling kit. Candidco.com slash Clavin. And you'll be able to look like Knowles or like me with Knowles's teeth, which is even better. Uh, all right. So what is the underlying principle that fuels this, um, this habit of failure to support Israel. I will show it to you in what was an amazing, amazing press conference with Raj Shah, the assistant, uh, I guess, spokesman for the White House. And here are the questions that the reporters were asking him about. Now, to set this up, obviously, you probably already know this, that Hamas in Gaza has basically told people to try and invade Israel. And as apparently they told the people that the wall between Gaza and Israel was not manned, which it is. It's manned with soldiers who protect it. And so they raced at the wall, setting tires on fire, throwing gas things, you know, over this, throwing flaming kites and all this. And and the Israelis opened fire on some of them as they were charging the wall. It was an invasion. It was thousands of people charging the wall. So they opened fire and more people have been killed more Palestinians have been killed than since the 2014 war. So here is the press reacting to this in their, the way they've been reacting for 70 years, right? Israel is now 70 years old, and this is the way the press has been reacting forever, asking these questions of Raj Shah. The death toll is over 50 in Gaza. Is the U.S. calling on Israel to use restraint in, in dealing with these protests? Well, we believe that... Um you know, Hamas is responsible for these for these uh, tragic deaths, that their uh, rather cynical um, exploitation of the situation, it is what is what's leading to these deaths. And uh, we want them to stop. So there's no burden on Israel to do something to sort of rein it in. If I can very quickly, the French Foreign Minister Raj said about what's taking place in Gaza, he urged Israeli authorities to exercise discretion and restraint. So to be clear, does the U.S. not agree with the French? that Israeli authorities should exercise discretion and uh, restraint. We believe that Hamas is responsible for what's going on. So there's no responsibility beyond that on the Israeli authorities. Kill at will. What, what I'm saying is that we believe that Hamas, as an organization, is engaged in cynical action that's leading to these deaths. On the issue of peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, when was the last time the White House reached out to Palestinian leadership? And will, given the high numbers of casualties, uh, Palestinians calling what's happened today a massacre. Will the White House be reaching out? Well, uh, I don't honestly have an answer for you on that. I'll, I'll get okay, back to you. Just follow up then. Sure. I mean, 
Jared Kushner in his speech pointed a finger at the Palestinians saying they were responsible for provoking violence. But given the fact that it's only Palestinians who are being killed, should Israel not shoulder some of the blame? Well, as I said earlier, we believe Hamas bears the responsibility. Look, this is a propaganda attempt. I mean, this is a, a gruesome and unfortunate propaganda attempt. I think the Israeli government has spent weeks um, trying to handle this uh, without violence. How many times does he have to say the right, the same thing over and over again? It's Hamas who's responsible for this. Hamas is a terrorist organization in its charter. It calls for the destruction of Israel. When Hamas's leader was asked, does, does he believe that Israel has a right to exist? He said, I'll have to have a country first and then I'll get back to you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's like, you know, do, do you believe that I have a right to exist? Well, I'll need, I need a gun first and then I'll let you know. The, the Daily News, just to cover itself in slime, and when you have underlying principles that are wrong, when you have underlying principles that are, that are uh, misguided, one of the ways you can tell is what be, you be, turn into. That's one of the ways you can tell. If you can't argue with someone who opposes you without using four-letter words, if you can't argue without attacking somebody personally, you probably made a mistake somewhere. Here's the Daily News. Ivanka Trump was sent over to the opening of the embassy, made speeches, welcoming people. It was a celebratory event in um, in Israel because obviously, finally, they're getting something that is just has just been reality. America is just recognizing reality. The Daily News puts out this headline of Ivanka smiling, Daddy's little ghoul. <laughs> 55 slaughtered in Gaza, but Ivanka all smiles at Jerusalem embassy unveil. When you turn into that, when you turn into a person who does that to someone, you know that you've made a mistake. That's when you start to say like, oh yeah, now I stink, I suck, and it's probably because my values are bad. Morning Joe re-echoed this, just like kind of slavishly sold this line of thought. Listen to them talking about this. And Mika, for the rest of the world, you actually saw an administration, a White House, and we'll say it since Ivanka Trump was there, a family completely uh, out of touch with the realities of the region that they're dealing with. And, um, you know, it, it, you, you had 55, 55 people uh, killed yesterday? 58, 58, 59. 58, and you had a split screen of what looked like a VIP tent at the Belmont Stakes. Uh, and, and they just... They don't care. Seemed totally oblivious to what was going on. Uh, not not so far away. <laughs> totally oblivious. They're celebrating it. They're celebrating the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem while these terrorists who want to wipe this country off the face of the earth are trying to kill them. You know, Nikki Haley pushed this a little further, saying it's not just Hamas, that Hamas is Iran. And that, of course, is true. The Iran deal, part of what's going on is Iran is fighting back against uh, and Washington that is finally admitting, admitting that Iran is not our friend. Iran is responsible for a lot of this. And Nikki Haley in the UN, when they were gathering together to obviously to condemn Israel, went after them. In recent days, Hamas terrorists, backed by Iran, have incited attacks against Israeli security forces and infrastructure. That is violence that should occupy our attention too. The common thread in all of this is the destabling conduct of the Iranian regime, a regime that insists on promoting violence throughout the Middle East while depriving its own people of basic human rights. 
The United States welcomes a discussion of this violence in the Middle East. We welcome discussing the ways we can cooperate with each other to put an end to this violence. There is far too little discussion in the Security Council on Iran's destabilizing presence in Syria, its promotion of violence in Yemen, its support for terrorism in Gaza, and its dangerous and illegal weapons buildup in Lebanon. So, you know, this is what's what's happening here. Uh, Walter Russell Mead, great new columnist of The Wall Street Journal, uh, wrote about this today. What is happening is Obama was basically withdrawing from the Middle East, and he thought if we're nice to Iran, Iran will become more moderate and they'll be nice and we can just kind of pull out and then we'll have the great global world that's coming, the great you know, unified global world run by the UN and America won't have to be the cop anymore on the street. So it's just, we'll just kind of decline into like a sort of England. We used to be a great power, but we're not anymore. And Donald Trump is like, eh, I don't think so. I don't think that's where this is going. Obviously, Iran is not moderating, is not becoming a more moderate force. Whether they're building nuclear weapons or not, they're not becoming a moderate force. They're still terrorists trying to destroy Israel. If we pull out, Israel is going to be in big trouble. And freedom is going to be in big trouble because that is the underlying principle that, that these reporters are all missing. The idea is that we are supposed to be fair and treat Palestine, the, the Palestinians and the Israelis the same. And we should not. We should not. They are not the same. You know who knew this? Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer, you know, he never acts on it. He never did anything about it. He brags about how he helped pass the bill declaring Jerusalem the capital, but he never did anything. He supported Obama. He didn't support the Iran deal, but he supported Obama when Obama was stabbing Israel in the back repeatedly. But he made a speech in 2014. He said, you can't have moral equivalence between these two people. This was right after three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped and killed by Hamas, and somebody struck back by killing a Palestinian teenager. And he said, this is not the same thing. Listen to, to Chuck when he was actually talking sense. He wasn't doing anything about it, but he was talking sense. How can we compare the two sides? How can people say, oh, the Israelis, oh, the Palestinians, it's one big fight. They're all the same. It is not. Again, regretfully, there are fanatics on both sides. And I abhor the Israeli fanatics. They make things bad for the vast majority of Israelis who want to live in peace in a two-state solution. But the vast majority of Israelis condemn the Jewish fanatics. The vast majority of Palestinians seem to praise the Palestinian terrorists. And Hamas, one of the two main governing organizations in Gaza and the West Bank, loudly praises the kidnapping and killing of the three Israeli boys. Right. It's about values. It's about what Israel stands for. Israel stands for freedom. I, I, you know, one of the most successful videos I ever did in my early, when I first started doing videos, was called The One State Solution, where the entire Middle East is given to Israel. I said, never mind, there's two-state solution. And of course, I was, I was joking about that, but I wasn't joking about the fact that the values of Israel that actually supports freedom of religion, supports freedom for women, supports equality, uh, democratic governance, rule of law, all those things that Israel supports that the, the Palestinians do not support and the Iranians do not support. By the way, there are plenty of countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Jordan that are saying like, yeah, we don't really care about this. You know, Israel is actually better for us than Iran. They're actually siding with Israel now because Iran is becoming such a beast because Obama was pulling out and letting Iran get bigger and bigger and bigger. Those underlying principles are false. 
Israel is, our, is not just our friend because they're our friend. They're our friend because they are us. They are the West. They are freedom. They're rule of law. They're the things that we support in this world. And we don't support the Palestinians in the same way because they are not representing those values. The last thing we need is another crummy country of oppression. You know, when, when uh, Saudi Arabia moves a little bit toward being more like Israel, more like the West, when these countries do that, they become better countries for their people, for their people too. So we're supporting values over there. It's not just, it is not that all these people are the same, and it's not just the body count either, because the body count, it really does matter who is responsible for it. You know, if you want to know about stuff, if you want to really learn, get deep information about stuff, you got to read magazines. You got to read books and you got to read magazines. And you don't have to read, like, you don't have to go out into the newsstand. There's a newsstand around the corner. You don't have to just pile up all these, you know, uh, magazines and ca- come teetering home with them. You can just get Texture. Texture is one of the most addictive apps I have ever seen. It's an app that offers over 200 top magazines all in one place. With Texture, you get complete issues and back issues for titles like Wired, Time, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. They're all in one app. <clears throat> you can search them. You can save them. It's great. And it's all kinds of things. Entertainment, uh, Cosmo, you know, Entertainment Weekly and Cosmo, all kinds of things where you can get in-depth information. And once you start it, and once you start reading it, you will just disappear into it they'll just come and find your feet sticking out of your iPad. That's all That's all that'll be left because it will suck you in and uh, you'll just be that fascinated by what you get. Texture is usually $9.99 a month, but they're giving listeners a free trial to start your seven-day free trial. You really should because once you do it, you'll see what I mean. Once you start your seven-day free trial, you can go to texture.com slash Clavin. And you might even learn in one of these magazines how you spell Clavin, because I know you want to know it's K-L-A-V-A-N. Go to texture.com slash Clavin to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazines today. Texture.com slash Clavin. I want to end with just one thing, you know. I, I, I did it yesterday. They released an interview I did on a podcast called Bad Christian Podcast. And on this uh, interview, I was talking about relations with blacks and they were kind of, they're young guys and they're saying, well, you know, shouldn't, don't we have white privilege and shouldn't we balance white privilege? And I said, you know what? You can't change the past. The past is the past. You can only stop doing what you were doing. That's all you can do. You can only start treating people equally equally. What do I do with an equal person? I compete with him. I try to make him be, if he wants the job I want, he's got to be better than me. That's it. That way he has to be excellent. And somebody put on Twitter, and I'm not attacking this guy personally. I know he's a man of goodwill. He just wants things to be good. But he says, this was cruel. It is cruel to expect a black man to compete with you. It's like asking a twig to compete with a tank. So I'm cruel because I'm treating a black guy as my equal, which I believe. I mean, that's not, I'm not just treating him that way. I actually believe he is my equal. But he is kind, like the guy, like the guy in 300. I am kind. You know, he is kind because he is treating, is pitying this guy and infantilizing this guy and belittling this guy in the interest of his feeling that he is serving equality. You want to serve equality, you treat people like equals. And if I treat you like an equal, it means I'm going to make you beat me for everything that I want. If you want to take something from me, you've got to be better than me. And ultimately, of course, you'll never beat me. I mean, let's let's face it. But ultimately, that is going to raise you to excellence. And after I'm dead, you can start having the things that you, you want. These underlying principles make us foolish. And we don't look around and say, oh, look, they're failing. They're failing. There is no Israel-Palestinian peace process. There hasn't been for 70 years. You can't have a peace process with people who want to destroy you. There is no 
uh, there's no good for black people in treating them like children and treating them like second rate uh, citizens. That is not a good thing. That is not helpful to say, oh, you need reparations before you can do anything. No, you don't. Get an education. Make sure you marry the women who have your children. Do those things and you will be everything that you are going to be. And that, when you start to treat people like that, you break the habit of failure because you're getting rid of the underlying values that are leading you astray. Hey, today, this very day, May 15th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific, all your questions will be answered by The Daily Wire's own Michael Knowles. And then you can write us in the mailbag and get the real answers. No, no, no. Please ask him lots of questions about embarrassing subjects and be sure to really torment him about his papism because the man is a papist. He's a papist, I tell you. And we can't make that easy for him. As always, the lovely and talented Elisha Krauss will be hosting it and keeping Knowles in his place. God love her. This month's episode will stream live on Daily Wire's YouTube and Facebook page, it will be free for everyone to watch, but only subscribers can ask the questions. To ask questions as a subscriber, log into our website, dailywire.com. Head over to the conversation page to watch the live stream. After that, just start typing into the Daily Wire chat box where Michael will answer questions as they come in for the entire hour. Once again, subscribe to get your questions answered by Michael Knowles today, May 15th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern 2.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the conversation. Join a conversation with us by being in the mailbag tomorrow. We have Natalie Ritchie coming up to discuss her new book, Roar Like a Woman, How Feminists Think Women Suck and Men Rock. I have been saying that for a long time, and Natalie Ritchie says it even better. Come on over to thedailywire.com. We have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. All right. Natalie Ritchie joined us from Sydney, Australia, where it was four o'clock in the morning, which was very kind of her. She's the author of Roar Like a Woman, How Feminists Think Women Suck and Men Rock, which will be released June 5th. But you can already pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, she explains the difference between feminism and masculinism and how the feminist movement has degraded into the latter. She's a former travel writer and media relations consultant in the tourist industry, and her most recent role was as features editor for Australia's national parenting magazine, Child. She's also the mother of two boys. Here she is, uh, Natalie Ritchie from Sydney, Australia. Natalie, thank you for waking up uh, so early to be here. I know it's some ungodly hour in, in where you are, but uh, I appreciate it. Oh, anything for you, Andrew. Four fifteen a.m. is fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've been I've been reading "Roar Like a Woman: How Feminists Think Women Suck and Men Rock," and I have to tell you that I, a lot of this is stuff that has occurred to me before that feminists seem to have adopted uh, male values. Let me just I, I I will read a quote for the audience and then ask for your comment on it. Uh, Feminism cares about career not because it sees career as women's work, but because it sees it as men's work and therefore as the pathway to self-actualization for women. Can you explain that? Why, why do you feel that is? Yes. I think when feminism began in the 1960s and the 70s, it was such a positive movement. You know, it was about getting women out of those limiting roles of only being a housewife and mother and going out into the world and doing lots of great stuff. That was such a wonderful thing. And it achieved that in a couple of short decades, you know, from 1963 to 1983, say, it basically changed the world. That was wonderful. But then it morphed into the very opposite of what it set out to be. It, instead of attacking the, the, the oppression, if you like, that kept women limited to housewives and mothers, it attacked housewives and mothers themselves. Mm. 
And so instead of being a, a left-wing movement that purported to care about women as a minority, it flung itself at the feet of, you know, the big bad white men on the right kind of thing. And said, you know, he, you know, he is the way, the truth, and the light. You, you've got to be him or you're not as good as him. And so it's actually morphed into a very misogynist patriarchal movement. It has become a patriarchy all its own. It, it really is true. And for a left-wing movement, it has also adopted uh, the values of capitalism. It basically says to women, if you're not making money, if you're not uh, you know, making the same amount of money as somebody else, you're, not, you're kind of a failure. That's right. You know, men have been taken as the benchmark and women are no longer legitimate people in their own right. And when you worship men like that, you worship the, the dimensions of life that men live in. And, you know, men are primarily spend their day in, um, in you know, the public dimension of life. It's business, it's government, it's politics, law, academia. And so feminism has pumped all the oxygen to those dimensions and drained oxygen, drained validation from the big private dimension, if you like, the, the place outside the workplace, you know, the home, the community, the family, um, you know, the, the, um, the connections between people. And, and I wonder if that is why, or if that is contributing to the anxiety that we all feel today. Because if you're living to work, if you're living to govern, you're not living well. You know, business and government are there to serve the business of living. You know, we work to live, we govern to live. And, and so feminism has really inverted the purpose of, of why we're all here. You know, while I certainly agree with you that when feminism got started in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of there were changes that needed to be made. Our gender roles had become very restrictive and there were all kinds of reasons, technology and birth control, why women were now free of certain things that they weren't free of before. But very early on, there was a kind of tendency toward this in the movement. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir famously said that she didn't believe that women should be allowed to make the choice of being homemakers because too many women would make that choice, which translates yes. into women shouldn't live the way they want to live. They should live the way Simone de Beauvoir wants them to live. That's right. Why do you think, why do you think that that strain of feminism has, has taken over? I think uh, my personal theory is that those masculinist women, I would call them masculinist women, have probably grown up in homes where they didn't have strong, strong what I would call strong women, you know, women who actually valued what women bring to the world, the, the mothering, most obviously, running a home, which matters, you know, dinner matters, um, a clean house matters, um, the kids matter. Um, your neighbors matter, that your the connections with the community matter. She's a mother, a woman is probably caring for you know her own elderly parents. These things all matter too. And um, the only difference I would say between a, a a failed woman and a successful woman is self-respect. You know, you don't even you don't have to like being a housewife, you don't even have to enjoy being a mother. Lots of mothers don't enjoy everything about motherhood, but you but you do need to respect it. You know, what you what you're doing matters. And feminism is saying what women bring to the world doesn't matter. Only what he brings matters. And that is causing women to, you know, attack ourselves. We're actually believing that we suck. Um, <laughs> but if we do what a man does, if we have that CV, then we don't suck anymore. And, and it's got to be the same CV he's got. We've got to be doing the same jobs, working the same hours. 
And what that means is that if every woman is doing what a man does, then no woman is doing what women do. And if every if a man is a petroleum engineer, then she's got to be a petroleum engineer. And she can't, you know, run a ballet studio or run a manicure salon unless he runs the ballet studio or owns a manicure salon. So we get to this insane world where women are eradicated and the stock of masculinity in the world is effectively doubled. It, it, it really is strange, especially because it depends upon women hiring other women to do the things that women have traditionally loved to do, like nurture children. I mean, it's not like the children can run free. Somebody's got to come in and take care of them. And usually that means that upper class women are hiring lower class women. So it doesn't actually change anything. It just it just uh, supports the rich over the poor. Yes, yes. And, you know, if you can't afford to buy that help in, then you wear it all yourself. You know, the average woman takes on uh, both the, say, 40 hour week that a man is working which we consider a full-time contribution from a man. Uh, she's also doing the immensity of motherhood. You know, I, I totted up the hours that I worked with. Uh, uh, if you have an ever-crying baby, as I did with my first child, if you have a toddler, if you're running a home, and that can all add up. I, I calculated it came to over 300 hours a week. I mean, obviously, she's not doing 300 hours a week, but if she was cleaning the bathroom, if she was doing all the different chores that are there to be done. That's how much work it is. And then feminism comes along and slams a 40-hour week down on her head as well and says, you've got to do that before you're his equal. Um, he doesn't have to do what she does before feminism considers him to be her equal. You know, feminism isn't saying, oh, men are in a distressing state of inferiority because they're not mothering. Um, and so this, we have this incredibly unequal situation now where women are left with their 50% share of the domestic and parenting load. They're doing most of his 50% share of the domestic and parenting load. And they're doing as much as 100% of his paid 40-hour week. Um, and this is, is untenable. If you're wealthy, yes, you can afford the working class women to come into your home. I uh, just spoke to a woman recently who had a uh, what she called a household manager, which is like a it's a housekeeper. So in addition to a cleaner, she had someone come in four hours a day at that school hour time, about two to six p.m. She cooked dinner, she tended to the kids, she got the homework done, and that's fantastic. Um, but she what, she what that woman was doing was acknowledging how much work she does and was actually willing to pay for it. Um, but most of us cannot afford to do that. And so women are just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing more and more. And the pressure is not letting up from feminism. I thought it would actually pull back after that first intense masculinist era of the 80s and 90s. But in fact, calls for gender equality, where 100% of women do what 100% of men do, are ramping up. You know, uh, feminism is interpreting equality as a 50-50 breakdown of any given endeavor. Well, 50-50 is just another way of saying 100-100. It's about saying 100% of women have got to do what 100% of men do. You know, there's a, there's, there's a tendency among feminists, uh, certainly among the feminists who are most outspoken now, to uh, attribute certain attitudes to men 
that are only true of the worst sorts of men. So they they talk about men as being uh, pigs to women. They talk about men as not having respect for what women do. But of course, you know, most men, we just had Mother's Day here yesterday. I mean, most men, the last words they ever speak on earth are calling for their mothers. They, you know, they they think about their mothers with very high regard. I've I've been around men all my life. And when they speak of their wives, Oddly enough, I mean, you know, you if you only went by what you saw on television, you would think that men were constantly making snarky remarks about their wives. But in locker rooms and places where men gather, men speak with the, about their wives with enormous respect. It makes me wonder, is feminism being led by a group of women who are projecting those attitudes, that those are their attitudes, that they hate themselves as mothers, they hate themselves as wives, and they're projecting that attitude on men? I think so, totally. I think I have never yet met a uh, an avowed feminist who speaks well of her own mother and, or who speaks well of her own father. Mm. She might um, worship her father, um, but what I've noticed is that feminists always seem to see men as uh, powerful, but powerful in negative ways. You know, they're powerful through being absent as a deserting father or through arrogance or through alcoholism or abuse. Um, and they tend to see their mothers as uh, powerless, as damaged or crippled. And then I think, yes, they are projecting those those ugly family dynamics onto society at large. They're probably only a, a minority of women, but we all tend to go along with feminism because it stands up for women's rights to a career, and we don't want to be seen to renounce our right to career. We think feminism is our friend. So we get we get pulled in along, pulled along in the wake of those masculinist women who really do not have respect for themselves or respect for men. You know, men are not toxic. Masculinity is not toxic. Masculinity is wonderful. You know, masculinity gave us just about everything worth having. It gave us freedom, political systems, you know, the economy, inventions, science. It's it's um just about everything you use. It's a, a very strange. One of the things that you wrote about that really I was so happy to see you write about was uh, single motherhood. I mean, I've visited a lot of uh, prisons and I've seen as, when you walk by the cells, what you are seeing is one fatherless child after another. How do you feel that feminism has increased single motherhood? And, and why do you feel that that is so bad? Yes, um, I think it's bad because I have been uh, a single mother. Uh, my marriage ended when my two sons were uh, four and five. And it breaks me, frankly. I do not get by. Um, you know, I have an education. I can get a job. But how do I get a job when I already have the world's busiest job <laughs> taking care of children? And, you know, the jobs in my field are in a location in my city that is a very long distance from my house. I cannot make that commute in one hour, even if I were to find a job at 5 p.m., which in my city, I live in Sydney, Australia, jobs finish at like 6, 6.30 p.m. Mm. And then you've got to make a very long commute to the daycare center, which closes at 6 p.m. They all shut at 6 p.m. here. And then you've got to get home. It takes me 40 minutes to get home. To be getting into, into the home at 6.40 p.m. and starting to get dinner cooked, to get the kids inside, you know, the, the whining, you know, what it's like, the, um, uh, all the, the dishes that haven't been cleared since the morning, you know, all of that stuff. It is impossible. And, uh, and, uh, and yet feminism is acting as if that immense job of motherhood does not exist and that a woman can 
do both his work, if you call it his work of earning a living and her work of motherhood um, at the very same time. Yeah. So it's become an individualist movement that's acting as if families don't exist and people don't need each other, but people do need each other. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm running out of time. I want to ask you the last question. You talk about a woman-shaped world. What does a woman-shaped world look like exactly? Oh, yeah. I think a woman-shaped world, it would just be a world that gives a woman her due equally as much as we give a man his due, that um, particularly in the workplace, just accommodate uh, the work that women are already doing, running homes and taking care of the kids, and actually shapes jobs to fit that reality. You know, we design a job to start at, say, 9 a.m., finish around 5 p.m., to give a man time to eat breakfast, travel to work, come home, eat dinner, have an evening. We give him two whole days out of seven in which to rest. We give him annual vacation. Um, but we're not doing that for, so we're acknowledging his humanity. We're not really acknowledging her human experience, which is the experience of running homes and caring for kids. Uh, you know, we could have uh, a parallel school hours economy that I think more than anything else in the workplace would um, make an enormous difference to to mothers to women's lives. It would it would be a very empowering thing. Employers have businesses to run, of course they do, uh, but employers had mothers too. You know, um, mothers are everybody. Everybody on earth had a mother, and we should be able to be accommodating that immense work uh, workload. You know, it's funny. Our- I, I I believe that more than anything that feminists say, and male oppression or anything, the the biggest problem women have today is that industry has taken a lot of what used to be home industries out into the factory and left at home mothers without a way to make a living while being an at-home mother, which they used to have. And that is a problem that really needs solving. Uh, Thank you. Natalie Ritchie, author of Roar Like a Woman, How Feminists Think Women Suck and Men Rock. Thank you uh, for getting up so early in Sydney, Australia. I appreciate it. It's really nice talking to you. It has been a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Uh, Really interesting lady. Nice uh, 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 intro to Sexual Follies. So HuffPo, it's got to be one of the stupidest. Andrew Breitbart told me that he helped build the Huffington Post. He said it was one of the biggest mistakes of his life. (laughs) He did. He said it was a terrible mistake. They had an article, why is fish sex so hot right now? An investigation, right? This is by Claire Fallon. And basically she finds that there are two uh, stories, The Shape of Water, obviously the Oscar-winning film by Guillermo del Toro, and a book called Pisces that feature women having sex with fish. And so she takes this to be a trend. And she says, these stories seem to have arrived during an inflection point for heterosexual relations as some straight women have thrown their hands up in despair at the prospect of dealing with straight men. These men who grope us and talk down to us and consistently fail to clean the bathroom. We're supposed to make lives with them, let them touch us. Women woke up one day to find that their husbands voted for Donald Trump. Then their sons have been posting on incel boards. Even before we heard the claims about Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual harassment and assault and the ensuing avalanche of other horrifying Me Too allegations, we heard about our president grabbing women, Bill Cosby. So many straight men we have been forced to accept are bad to and for us. Why would we take the enormous risk of loving them, loving one of them, and yet we do have survivors, so let's sleep with fish, basically. (laughs) She goes on. First of all, you know, my, my daughter, Faith Moore, who writes over at PJ Media, 
she she did a hilarious piece on this. It's called Huff. HuffPost women would rather have sex with fish than a man. And she makes fun of this. The fact that it's just two stories doesn't make it a trend. <laughs> but one of the things she says, Faith says, is that in, in stories where women sleep with beasts, like Beauty and the Beast and uh, all these, they're all uh, Phantom of the Opera. She talks about the creature from the Black Lagoon and Twilight. The beast represents masculinity. The beast represents that untamed, powerful sexual drive of men that women, heterosexual women, enjoy. So even though there are these stories about women sleeping with fish, it's the fish are men. They actually represent men. These people don't know. They take stories literally because they're dumb. <laughs> That's why. You should read Faith's piece on it. Like I said, it's called uh, HuffPost. Women would rather have sex with a fish than a man. I don't think so. Believe me. Although maybe you just fertilize the eggs and it's all a lot easier. They don't even know how fish actually have sex. All right. Tomorrow is the mailbag. Go to thedailywire.com. Subscribe. If you subscribe for a year, it's only a lousy hundred bucks and you get the leftist tears tumbler and you get to send in questions to the mailbag. Hit the podcast button up at the top. Hit the Andrew Claven podcast. Hit the mailbag. Ask any question you like about anything you like. The answers are guaranteed 100% correct. We'll change your life maybe, possibly a little bit for the better. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you tomorrow. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Emily Jai. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.